we get the privilege of starting a brand new book. We're going to be doing a full series in the Minor Prophets. Tonight we're going to begin with the book of Hosea. When we get done with Hosea, we're going to go right into the book of Joel, one of the more exciting Old Testament prophetic books. And this one that we have before us uh, is one of my personal favorites of the Minor Prophets. This one is rates right up there with with one of the most beautiful of all of the minor prophets, because we find here this incredible story of this very godly man, Hosea, who is going to speak to the Jewish people, what we know at this time um, as both Israel and Judah. They are two separate entities. They are not one collectively known as Israel. Israel is the northern kingdom, and Judah is the southern kingdom. And so those under Judah, uh, under good kings, those in the north, under bad kings. And so uh, tonight we're going to to start uh, this amazing book, and we're going to begin with a little historical review. And so uh, why don't we ask the Lord to speak to us tonight through his word. Father God, as we marvel at your prophetic word, Lord, as we look at the things that you spoke through this incredible man of God, Lord, this prophet Hosea. Lord, a man who understood the depth of your love, who understood the magnitude of your grace. Lord, the one who exemplifies the very work of you, Jesus. God, the things that will happen in his life so mirror the image of your son that it's almost staggering. And Lord, we commit this time to you tonight. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and Move aside any distraction or thing of the week that maybe we brought in with us. Lord, that we might hear your voice from heaven. God, would you speak to us as your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn, if you want to, to Hosea. We're going to get there in just a moment, but I want to share with you kind of where we are. A lot of people are confused when it comes to the Old Testament prophetic books, and very, very specifically, uh, the order in which we receive them. And so as we come to the book of Hosea, though you're going to find it in your Bible, it's right after the book of Daniel, yeah, uh, it's historically not really all that close to Daniel. And in fact, in relation to the book that we just finished, the book of Nehemiah, the book of Hosea moves us back in time almost 400 years. And it moves us back in time to virtually the exact same time uh, as, as the prophet Isaiah, uh, the prophet Jeremiah, uh, were prophesying in Jerusalem. So Hosea is in the north, and that's why it's so important to understand that the Jewish people were not united at this time. You had basically ten tribes in the north, some would say eleven, but certainly ten, and you had two and or one tribe, specifically Judah, in the south, and Judah, of course, is the kingly line of David. And so when we talk about this particular book, we're talking about a time uh, that goes back. And we just came from Nehemiah, and of course, uh, the ruler that was in, in Persia at the time, Artaxerxes, came uh, from Xerxes, and they were very, very despotic. Basically, they kind of ran amok uh, in the Middle East at that time. Uh, at the time of Nehemiah, you also had Ezra, who had uh, come back some 80 years uh, after Zerubbabel to Jerusalem. And so you have this historical chain of events 
that's kind of unfolding that we've already preceded in studying Nehemiah. And, and so what they found when they came back, as we shared when we were in Nehemiah, are the very things that Hosea was preaching about 400 years earlier. And that's the reason I'm giving you a little bit of historical background here. Because in the life of the church, very frequently, as I said last time, if you don't get it the first time, you're kind of doomed to repeat those cyclical things. And you find yourself right back to where you once were. And in this case, we're going to see that under these rulers that were quite frankly evil, uh, that, that in essence, by the time the Assyrians, which is what's going to happen now under the time of Hosea, they were the forerunners of the Babylonians who would come along 400 years later. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his character changes not. His promises never fail. He is faithful when we are faithless. But nonetheless, what God says, he means. And as I've shared with you so many times, there's not an Old Testament way of salvation and a New Testament way of salvation. There's one way of salvation. His name is Jesus. And so the pictures that we have throughout the Old Testament prophets are largely of the coming Messiah. And the results of the things that transpire during the times that these books were written are very similar to what we see in our lives as we have things in our lives that don't belong there, like sin. God speaks to those issues, and he says, these things kind of need to go. Now, he gives you free will, and he gives you free choice to do whatever you want to do, and so you're free uh, to sin if you choose, but the results have always been the same. Sin brings bondage and ultimately death. That's what sin does. It has always done that. And so in these marvelous Old Testament prophets, as we move back and after uh, the time of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is the last of, as I shared with you, the last of the historical books. Anything historical after Nehemiah uh, simply does not exist in your Bible. The next prophet that's going to speak right after Nehemiah's time is the prophet Malachi. He would be the last prophet. He is the last a person to speak in the Old Testament, and then there will be 400 years of silence where God says, look, I sent you Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and I sent you Daniel and Hosea and Joel. I sent you all of these men to tell you this is the way it's going to go. I'm a jealous God. I want you to live for me. You can choose your own way if you want to, but if you choose your own way, you're also going to get what that way chooses for you, which is not good. And so God, for a period of almost a thousand years, had a prophet in the land speaking to the nation Israel. And I'm using that word now collectively to mean the whole, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And so as we step back in time, if you will, to Hosea, who will be writing between 800 and 700 B.C., so this is significantly earlier than the mid-440s of Nehemiah, you, you, you have this man who is put into perhaps one of the oddest situations that we find in the entire Bible. 
Hosea ministered for a very long time. If you remember the book of Isaiah, when we studied it, it began uh, with the prophet Isaiah mourning the loss of the good king Uzziah. Well, Hosea also ministered during the time of Uzziah. He ministered during the time of Jotham. He ministered during, during the time of Ahaz. And he actually ministered during the time of Hezekiah, the great king, as well. And so in that list, you have four kings of Judah, and you have one king of Israel. So four kings from the south, all good kings. And one from the north, the wonderful guy Ahaz. And so the kings of Judah, belonging to David's dynasty, uh, which was the only dynasty, according to the book of First Kings, there in chapter 11, that God accepted as the, the leaders of the Jewish people. Uh, they're, they're in the south, and they're attempting uh, to live their lives in a godly fashion. But not everybody wants that. And, and unfortunately, this is kind of a window into our culture and our society, because God often allows things corporately in the lives of groups of people based on the whole. In other words, there are godly people. You remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot, amen? Uh, if there's, if there's uh, how many people? Fifty. And he says, well, there's, you know, you know well, we got, we got Lot in his family. Will you spare the city? He didn't spare the city, he spared the family, he spared the one. You see, God deals with sin. And whenever people choose to go that direction, what's on the horizon is not a good thing. And God can't change his, his manner of dealing with this. He has always been just. He's always been righteous. The good news is, the book of Hosea says, he's also always been loving. He's also always been gracious. He's always been kind. He's also been tender and long-suffering. You know, there's some of the characteristics about God that I appreciate more than others. Mercy is one. Long-suffering is two. I am so glad I do not get what I deserve. And I am so glad that I don't get it for a long time. God suffers long with us. And so these kings, you're going to see here in the first several chapters... Uh, you have both of the Jeroboams, and we're going to get to some photos here in just a minute. And this is very important because these guys have been extremely accurately historically placed, and in fact so much so that we not only have writings from them, we have cities from them, we have places dedicated to them, and there is a very specific place that's going to come into view right here in the very first chapter that's extremely important to us even now as the church because God is still going to do a work in that particular place. Uh, you see there behind me a, a picture of Mount Tabor, um, and that valley that lays down there is the Valley of Jezreel or the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Um, you also know it by another name that's found there in Revelation chapter 16, uh, Harmageddon. Uh, it, it is the place, ultimately, uh, that, the, that the Lord will come back and fight that final battle. But in these kings, you kind of get a picture of how humankind has worked. You have Jeroboam the first, you've got Jeroboam the second, and then you're going to run through a, a number of kings. And by the time you get to the house of Jeroboam the second, um, Hosea is going to write during the, the reigns, the, the reign of that entire family, not just Jeroboam the second, but he's also going to write during the reign of all of his offspring. And so he spends almost 50 years prophesying. 
He's one of the, he's one of the most aged of all the prophets uh, in length of time that he spends uh, ministering to the Jewish people. And so if we could start that slideshow, that second slide, I want to hopefully we'll get through these here. Um, when Connie and I were just in Israel, um, that is actually that is actually the city of Megiddo. And so it's on the it's on the plain of Escadrillion, uh, which is also another word for the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Um, and it is the one of the oldest. It probably is the oldest uh, inhabited ancient city, which the ruins of which have been excavated. Now, that mound that you see there, you commonly hear the word tell used. That's just another word for a pile of dirt. Um, but that is Tel Megiddo. It's actually the city of Megiddo. It was the king's palace for the northern kingdom. And so this is actually the palace of Jeroboam II. Next slide, please. And so in that, uh, you find all of these kings, and marvelously, they left pottery shards with their names all over them because they were kind of boastful and proud and arrogant. And so they pretty much named everything. That actually is the water tunnel because one of the things that you have to have during that period of time in order to survive any type of onslaught from an army, and judging from that valley you looked at it at first, this is a raised area on the edge of a valley, very defensible space, but you have to have water. And in this case, there was a long water tunnel that was dug from springs that were outside the city, uh, brought inside the city, and then a well shaft uh, was was taken down to that. And then up on the Temple Mount, next slide, please, uh, you, you have right in that location, you have the top of the well. It's almost 400 feet straight down um, through the top of the tell to the bottom of that shaft. And what they would do as it would go down in the shaft and then out of the shaft, and they build a fortification at the at the end of it. They bring water back up into the city and then fill those cisterns that you see there in the in that painting or in that uh, photo. So next slide. So the book of Joel calls it the Valley of Decision. Uh, it is a place where God is still going to do some work. Um, it's also known by a very interesting name. It's also the Valley of Jezreel. And the Valley of Jezreel gets its name from one of Hosea's kids. And so what we're going to see tonight is God's going to pronounce upon the Jewish people um, that they've got some issues and that they've got some things coming to them that are going to happen in very short order. Next slide, please. As you look out across that valley, it's about 22 miles long. It's about six miles wide. And according to the book of Revelation, it's going to be the site of the world's greatest military battle that ever occurs. It's also going to be the site of the single largest slaughter of humankind uh, during the very last days in the time of Jacob's trouble. We know it as the tribulation uh, in in the times of the Gentiles when they are ended and God is done uh, saving people on this earth. Uh, that is the valley where it's going to be fought. Right now, if you were to look at a map of Israel, on one end, as far as a body of water goes, you have the Dead Sea, which is the giant salt lake. It's the lowest spot on the planet Earth, uh, some 1,360 feet below sea level. In the north, you have the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Gennesaret. Um, between those two places lie this valley. And so strategically, the interesting thing at the time was all of these kings, specifically Jeroboam, if we could have that next slide, uh, he, he was uh, pretty sure that these things were going to take place because he built some very, very, very large structures. That is a public grain silo. 
It is more than 40 feet across. It is about 60 feet deep. And it's just about the size of a, of a silo that you might find out in the farmlands of Nebraska someplace. It's absolutely huge. Um, inside of that particular silo was found uh, a very large pot. Inside that pot, several um, tablets. And in those, on those tablets, this was the granary of Jeroboam II. And so this was actually a spot that uh, Jeroboam thought he could store up enough grain to survive the onslaught that Hosea prophesied about. Um, it didn't work. And in fact, not only did it not work, but you can see the size. Those are steps going down in there. So you'd actually start at the top and kind of wind your way all the way around, go all the way down to the bottom, put your grain in or take your grain out. Uh, it was a very, very, very well-fortified city. It had a commanding view of this plain. That is also the valley that uh, Saul ultimately was defeated in. David fought two battles in this particular valley. Um, this, is, this is declared to be historically the most blood-soaked piece of earth already. There have been more battles fought in this particular valley than any other place on the planet Earth already. And so it is no surprise that the last one's going to take place there as well. And so now if we could get to our bottom. Yeah, you can go one more. And one more after that. There we go. All right. Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. Hosea is going to provide perhaps one of the greatest windows into the love of God and the grace of God uh, that we can we can possibly ever imagine. In fact, his name uh, is a derivative of Yahushua, from which we ultimately will get Jesus. And so his name actually means God is salvation. If you want to clearly define it, you, you could say it's God saves, but it is God is salvation, is the most literal rendering of the name of Hosea. It is also the name of Israel's last king. Uh, so interesting, you have the northern kingdom having an evil king named Hosea, which is the same word, just pronounced slightly differently. It's kind of like we spell Jeffrey with a G and we spell it with a J and we have it R-Y and R-E-Y. Uh, you, you, can, you can do it all kinds of different ways. It's very similar in Hebrew. And so God is salvation. So the word of the Lord in verse 1 says that came to Hosea, the son of Bari, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. So you clearly get the distinction between the two kingdoms. So you have four southern kings of Judah. You have one northern king uh, in Israel. And when the Lord began to speak to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, the most odd, bizarre, unbelievable words that I think have been spoken in all of human history when you're talking about one of the most godly men that was on the planet at the time. Take yourself a wife of harlotry and the children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. And so this particular passage is, is one of the ones that we use to kind of define spiritual adultery, if you will. In other words, when when you're unfaithful to the Lord in spiritual matters. And so Hosea is going to be chief among uh, those examples. And I want to read the rest of this chapter in its entirety. 
uh, to get the, the flavor as we move on. And so we went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And then the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. In other words, he's prophesying, your days are numbered. At this time, the northern king, uh, who was Jeroboam II at the time that these words were spoken, uh, was, was very content in that grain silo that you saw, very content in the city of, of Megiddo. As he sat there on that mount, and by the way, the layers of that city as they've been excavated, there are 30 different civilizations in that one spot, stacked one right on top of another. So it had always been considered a place to where you were pretty much going to rule the land from there. And they were trusting in, as Isaiah said, in horses and chariots. And so he said, I'm going to bring it into that kingdom, and it shall come to pass in that day. Remember that phrase, in that day, almost always refers to a very specific day. And it's the day of the Lord. In that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. And then God said to him, call her name Lo-Rumah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. And yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God. Now, if you remember our study in the book of Isaiah, if you remember the story of Isaiah, because they're in the south, now you get the picture that these are two completely different kingdoms. Because Judah is in the south. They're in the area that, I, that Nehemiah went back and rebuilt prior to it being destroyed by the Babylonians. And so there is the temple there, the first temple. There is the opportunity for them to worship the Lord. And they are basically at that point in time keeping themselves holy unto the Lord. But they are going to be uh, besieged by the same group that's going to come and completely wipe out the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom will go into absolute captivity if they're not killed under the Assyrian army. And as the Assyrians move forward, you're going to find out by the time you get to the middle of the book of Isaiah, 66 chapters in that particular book, 37th chapter, you're going to find out that the Lord, in fact, does deliver the people who are besieged in Jerusalem by the angel of the Lord. And in fact, it says in one night that the angel of the Lord went among the camp of the Assyrians and slaughtered 185,000 of them in one night. And so God kept his promise. I'll have mercy on the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow nor by sword, nor by battle, nor by horses, nor by horsemen. Isaiah records that exact event. Now bear in mind that at this time, they're about a four-day journey apart. If you could walk really fast, you might be able to make it in three, but chances are it take you the better part of a week, most people at least four. It's about 100 miles or so further to the south. Relatively easy traveling. And then God said, uh, now when she had weaned Lo-Ramah, she conceived and bore a son. And God said, call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. And yet the number of the children of Israel should be as the sands of the sea. Remember, God made a covenant promise with them. Amen? Does God ever break his covenant promises? No, he does not. 
but he does pronounce judgment in the face of sin. And so while keeping his covenant promise that they will be as numerous as the sands of the sea, he also says, don't be mistaken. You continue this way and I will destroy you. God does that. That's why one of the things that, that I look back on my own life, and I certainly see the gracious hand of God, but it always encourages me to stand boldly when people are flirting with sin. You, you don't know when God reaches the end of when he's being long-suffering and when he's about to turn judgment upon you. And when he makes that corner, that judgment is swift and it's final. And so he, he begins to now say, you're, you're, he's going to go on, and it shall come to pass in the place that it was said to them. Now, where is he saying this? He's saying this in the northern kingdom. That you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. How do you become the sons of the living God? It's very clear that this is speaking forward in time prophetically. He says, in the same place, in the valley of Jezreel, because that's where Hosea lived. He lived at the probably the southern edge, really, of the Sea of Galilee, the region of the Sea of Galilee, and on the northern edge of the valley of Jezreel, Jehoshaphat, the plain of Escadrillion. As he lived there, that's where these words were spoken. He says, you are the sons of the living God. And then the children of Judah, notice this, and the children of Israel. So what's going to happen when he says, you are the sons of the living God? The two kingdoms will be brought back together as one. So he says there to them, and then the children of Judah, the children of Israel, shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head. How many heads did they have at this time? Two. One in the south, one in the north. They will have one day exactly one. They have never been fully brought back together yet to call God by his name. Most of the Jewish people are actually agnostics or atheists. A vast majority of them are. If they do have faith, it's very marginalized. The rest are ultra-Orthodox. They certainly have not fulfilled this particular promise even to this day. And they'll appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. And so Hosea pronounces in this first chapter a number of things. We're going to move through them. I think we can cover these 11 verses tonight. And because of the tragedy in his own personal life, think about this for a moment. Here's a man who's a prophet of God, and he says, well, you know, I kind of want you to go uh, take a harlot, take literally a prostitute, a whore. The translation in the King James is very, very clear. It says a wife of whoredom. And it's actually a literal rendering of the way the Hebrew language is spoken here. It is, it is someone who makes their living uh, off of the sexual appetites of men. This is a legitimate street walker, not nice woman. And why am I emphasizing that? Because, quite frankly, that's all of us without Jesus. Amen? Now, maybe we don't have that sin, 
But we're caught up in something equally as vile. Maybe you're just a bitter, mean-spirited, horrible person. Maybe you have had anger your entire life. But you are caught up in that to where there's no end in sight. That's your life. That's the way you live. And so he says, I want you to go take this wife of harlotry. Can we have that second slide? As Hosea contemplates his nation's sins, his heart's just, you can almost see in this as we move forward how he's thinking about the people. He's going, man, what are we doing? We're the children of God. We're the ones who were delivered out of the wilderness wanderings. Don't you guys remember when we were in bondage in Egypt? Can't, can't you get it? These are the people who profess to know the one true and living God. These are the people who had the only tidbits of God's word that were actually written at the time. They no doubt had the first five books, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. They literally possessed as the only people on earth the written word of God. And yet they're following after these Horrible kings. These are the people who had Elijah and Elisha. And if you look at where the, the tell of Megiddo is, and if you look directly to the west and slightly to the north, you're going to find Mount Carmel. And if you remember the story of Mount Carmel, that is where Elijah and Elisha went to do battle with the prophets of Baal. It was these kings who brought that into the land. They're the ones that authorized, hey, we want you to worship Ashtaroth. We want you to worship Molech. We want you to go out and do everything our neighbors are doing. You know why? Because it's politically expedient. You know, if we just do what they do, then they won't bother us. If we just take up their customs, then they'll leave us alone. If we just believe as they believe, let's just believe how they believe, because believing like we believe, that's going to get us a war. How many of God, whenever God's people have stood up, it's always produced the same thing. It's produced a war. And whether it's a war between you and somebody that's close to you, or whether it's a literal war, it's going to produce a war. When you stand for God, you are standing against the things of the world. And they had every advantage. Think about what God had given these people. When you look at a map of the Middle East and you realize exactly how gnarly the rest of the land is that's around Israel, and the only reason it looks like it does today is because of what the Jewish people have done. But when you look at it, it's one of the most desolate places on earth. And yet they're thriving there. They're blessed there. They're farming next to the Jordan. In this particular valley, the Kishon River flows through it. It, it, There's an irrigation system that flows from Tel Megiddo that goes all the way to the Roman aqueduct that goes to Caesarea on the coast. They had running water. They had farmland galore. They could feed their people. and, And yet they still caved in to the mores of the people that lived around them in what we would call southern Lebanon, modern-day Lebanon, in Syria, in Jordan, and certainly from Egypt. And so that land of Moab and Edom, which would be on the other side, the eastern side of the River Jordan, dwelled all these people that had the exact opposite value system. 
And do you remember what Nehemiah said? He would say that some 400 years. Do not intermarry with these people. Because if you yoke yourselves to that evil, pretty soon you're going to be doing that evil too. And so in all of those things, as God was still going to keep his covenant to cause them to grow, the people broke their side of the covenant. Do you remember what their side of the covenant was? Be ye holy, for your God is holy. They had been given the Ten Commandments by this time. You shall love the Lord your God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So there can't be any other gods. God didn't give them a massive long list of things. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to love me supremely, and I want you to love everybody else like you would love yourself. It's pretty much what Jesus came and said too, isn't it? That's why he said, in this is the fulfilling of the law. You, you see, as, as they broke these covenants, basically they were saying, you know what? You're going to have to deliver us divinely because we're just going to give in. We're going to give up. And so this picture that we see here in, in the book of Hosea becomes one that's, that's crystal clear. As we go through these things, I'm going to give you some of the messianic glimpses that are found here, and you're going to see it just the, the plan of salvation just literally unfolds right before your eyes. Have that next slide, please. There's some things that I that I I, I wonder, you know, what was what was Hosea thinking? You know, because he had to be deep in thought. You imagine he, he goes to God, he asks God, you know, God, what do you want me to do? I want you to marry a harlot. Say what? That's what the people are. Yeah, I want you to do that. And all of a sudden, he begins to think about it. And this is where you can get a real clear glimpse of grace in this very first chapter. You mean you still love them? How far does that love go? Where's the line? Pretty much sounds like people today, doesn't it? That's why when I tell you not much has changed in the last few thousand years. Not much has changed in the last few thousand years. The way we express it may, but the basic conditions and problems still exist the same way they did then. And he's thinking to himself, man, these, these, these people that I dwell with, I mean, I can't believe it. And then God says, well, I want you to marry one of them. Matter of fact, I don't want you to just marry any of them. I want you to marry one of the worst of the worst. As far as that culture at that time was concerned, this is about as despicable as you could get. This was as bad as it really got in that society. Matter of fact, it was so bad that the penalty for it was death. Harlots were stoned. They still were in Jesus' time. Remember what the... What the Pharisee said? Look, we caught her in the very act. What does the law say? The law says we should stone her. Remember what Jesus said? He who is among you and yet without sin, let him cast the first stone. You think you're so righteous? You think you're so holy? You think you're without sin? Pick up the rock. And one by one, they all just wandered away. 
you're getting a picture here in the Old Testament of exactly what Jesus did. It's the same principle. Hosea, the whole world compared to my holiness is a bunch of harlots. The whole world's a mess. And I love sinners. I hate sin. But I love sinners. I guarantee you, Hosea was really surprised by what what was said to him. Have that next slide, Lisa. So what do you want me to do? Kind of... I wonder what he was thinking right before God spoke to him. He's probably thinking something like this. Well, God's going to tell me to go preach a message right there in the middle of town. And I'm going to go sit at the city gate. And when people come and go, I'm just going to tell them how messed up they are. I'm going to get a really big Bible. And when people come by, I'm going to hit them right in the head with it. I'm going to slap them with the word of just Bam! I'm going to stand on the street corner and I'm going to go, Thus says the Lord! God's going to give me some incredible task and I'm going to be super holy. No, I want you to go find a prostitute and marry her. And then I want you to have children by her. Say what? You know, he's doing the ear thing. He's checking to see if the batteries are good. (laughs) You see, this is a picture of how much God loves the Jewish people. Because only a loving God would put up with that kind of nonsense for the hope of bringing a little bit of God into their lives. Because the flip side of this is, Hosea is a holy guy. He's a guy who's walking right with God. And he's going to be interjected into a situation that he's just, man, I can't even believe it. And this is not a doctrinal excuse for you to be unequally yoked. That, isn't the, that is not the picture here. The exact opposite is true. But it is a beautiful picture of the extent of the grace of God. To the lengths that God will go to save the lost, to minister. Ultimately, that's going to culminate in what we have in our Bibles is Romans chapter 11. That when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, all Israel will be saved. He's still crying out to the Jewish people. He's still saying, what are you doing? They've been in bondage. They've been through the Holocaust. They've been taken captive. They've gone away in the diaspora. They've come back. They now number some probably between 6 and maybe 8 million people in the land of Israel, but probably more in the high 6s, low 7s total in the entire nation. They live constantly on the verge of war. They're the most hated people on the planet Earth. They are deemed responsible for all of the tension in the Middle East. And yet God still loves them. And they're still His people. And one day they're going to be as numerous as the grains of sand on in the seashore. 
They continue to exist. It's exactly as Winston Churchill said, if ever there were a case for God, it's the existence of the Jewish people after the Holocaust. He said, if it weren't for God, there's no way any of them would have survived. You realize that during the last year of the Second World War, Adolf Hitler put more money into exterminating the Jews than he did into prosecuting the war itself. He spent more money on the death camps, the railroads to get them there, and the operation of those death camps than he did on producing munitions and weapons of war. And yet the Jews still exist. God has a plan for them, and he loves them. And so he says to Hosea, you know, I'm going to give you some kids, and I'm going to give them some pretty amazing names. And so there is a challenge that goes to the prophet. You know, could this be God actually speaking? Is this a demon? And that next slide, you want to pop that one up? Is this the kind of message that come from a holy God? For the land is committed a great whoredom, the King James says, departing from the Lord, it says there in verse 2. He says, I want you to be an example of what's happening in the nation. I want you to be a prophet who can speak to the people exactly where they're at. They won't be able to accuse you of sitting in some lofty ivory tower, wearing flowing robes, doing nothing but studying the Pentateuch. I want you in the thick of it. Because it is there you will be the greatest effect that you can possibly be. Yep, Hosea, find yourself a harlot. Have some kids, settle down, plant a farm because you're a farmer. Next slide, please. So there's a challenge that goes out. And I think some of the questions, what, how far does love go? How, how did Hosea get there? How, how, were, how were these kids really important you know, there's really only a handful of things that could have been existent in Gomer's life. You know, was she a temple priestess? Because that would have put her in the place to where she would have been a professional prostitute. That's what they did. Maybe she was given herself, had given herself over to the worship of Baal or Ashtaroth or one of the Canaanite gods of the land. Perhaps she was, at that day and time, what would have been termed a very liberated woman. She just didn't see anything wrong with it. Kids weren't doing too good. So this was a way to make a living. Maybe it was that. Maybe she was just a, a common prostitute. We don't really know. But we do know God's response to her sin. I love you enough to send somebody very godly into your life, even though you yourself are not going to like the message. And this is where we begin to see the grace of God in action. The word, the hateful word, the horrible word, the word that we don't use in polite company, but it's used here in, in this passage several times for emphasis. What kind of message is that? It's the message of God's love. That's what this book is about. That's what God is saying as he, as he moves in Hosea's life. He says, I, I want you to go do something that's unthinkable. And so he gives him some children. The first one, Jezreel, is 
kind of a, a interesting name because it literally means may God sow or may God scatter. When you sow seed, you scatter it. Everybody get that? And so uh, it, it shows a nation that's defeated. They're scattered. They're all over the place. What happens to the Jewish people? They are scattered all over the place. He's now made a promise to him. He says that one day you're going to have one head. One day you're going to have one Lord is actually another word for it. There's going to be lordship in the land of Israel. And one day the northern and the southern tribes are going to be bound together. But right now your children are going to be testimony to the entire nation. Because you're the prophet, and I'm putting you together with somebody who's just like the nation, and the children that you bear will be witness to the nation. God's going to scatter you. And God kept his word. He scattered them. Matter of fact, not only did he scatter them, by the time Hosea ends his writing, the Assyrians have taken the entire northern kingdom. Fulfilled absolutely everything he said he would do. Right here in this place, you're going to be taken captive. So the nation ceased to be a nation. They became a handful of castaways that ended up in Babylon ultimately. Amen? We saw that with Nehemiah. It's believed that by the time they were taken away to Babylon, there may may have been as few as 50,000 Jews left on the face of the earth. 50,000. Maybe by the time they came back with Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, there might have been a couple of million of them after 70 years. You realize that when the nation Israel became a nation in 1948, that when they first went back into the land, they started with 168,000 people. It took them eight years of gathering people in and, and having their own children to get up to 500,000 people. And now as we sit today, they still haven't gotten very far. There's still a very small ethnic group on the face of the earth. And so God said, you know what? You keep doing these things, you're going to be a defeated nation. The second child, a daughter, really represents not being not beloved. Lo Rumah would be that complete and utter failure of the of the Israelite kingdom. Under Jeroboam the first, they had installed the worship of the golden calf. Under Ahab, uh, they had brought in the worship of Baal, Ashtaroth, and Molech. Under Jehu, they had instituted the religious reforms that brought them back to animal worship. Under Jeroboam the second, the king that's now uh, on the throne. Uh, Because of his military successes, he didn't want to give any of it up. So what does he do? We'll just capitulate to sin. We'll do whatever. And so he provokes them. Basically, the day of mercy was over. Verse 7 says, I will have mercy upon the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. And I will not save them by bow or by sword or by battle or by horses or horsemen. So Jeroboam, guess what? Your army's not going to do any good. That's not how I'm going to save you. Matter of fact, you're going to think you're all going to die. That's why when you read the writings of Jeremiah and Isaiah, man, you talk about a bunch of hopelessly lost people. And when you look at modern-day Jerusalem and its location right now, the location of the, the old city of Jerusalem, 
the city of David is further down in the Kedron Valley than it, than the modern city is today up on top. So you have two mountains, the Mount of Olives and Mount Scopus. And it's all downhill from those two mountains. So if you're attacking somewhere, all you need to do is take the Mount of Olives and Mount Scopus and you have the high ground over Jerusalem, period. End of conversation. And at the northern end, where the Mount of Mount Scopus is, if you were to just simply travel around the shoulder of that mountain, you could walk into Jerusalem from an elevated position. Now imagine that by the time Isaiah gets to the middle of his writing, there are probably anywhere between 250 and 500,000 Assyrians who have already wiped out all of these people that Hosea is talking about. They've been taken captive. They are no longer a nation in the north. The Assyrians control it, which, by the way, is the, the transliteration of their name is, is, the, is why the Assyrian people, uh, you have the nation Syria today. It's that same group, that same ethnic group. And so this particular daughter says, no, not going to have mercy, mercy on you anymore. The Assyrians triumphed over Samaria. Samaria is that middle section of modern-day Israel that runs all the way up into southern Lebanon. It's all been wiped out already. And they're, they're sitting on the edge of the holy city of Jerusalem where the only good king is. And God keeps his word. And then finally, the last son, Loami. His name means, you're not my people, or no kin of mine. So as Hosea marries Gomer, as Hosea has children, his children represent, God's going to scatter us. We are not any longer beloved of God, and you're not any kin of mine, as he begins to speak. As he speaks those words, he also at the same time is saying, that's why you want to change, because I don't think any of you want that. I don't, I don't think any of us want that today. That's one of the reasons when somebody says, well, I don't need to really do what God says. Yeah, you do. Because you really don't want God to scatter you. You really don't want God to declare that you're not his kid. That's not a good thing. Knowing that his wife was no better than a common prostitute, I can only imagine that that relationship that he had with his children was pretty tenuous. Amen? It's what happens when we have relationships with the world. You, you haven't got a clue what God's going to do next because you're walking in direct rebellion. And as we end tonight, as I told you, this is a book of love and grace. It is a book of love and grace because I want you to notice what he says at the very end of this in, in verses 10 and 11 because as he says there, he says, and yet, go marry a prostitute. Your children are going to be God scatters. You're not beloved, and you're no kin of mine. It's kind of a harsh judgment, isn't it? Notice what he says in verse 10. And yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea. But didn't you just say that my kids are going to be named, uh, may God scatter and not beloved and no kin of mine? 
Mm-hmm, that's what I said. But that's because I have to tell you that. That's not what I want to tell you. I have to tell you that because you're going the wrong direction. So there's going to be some suffering, but notice... It says they'll be as numerous as the sands of the sea. That's the original Abrahamic covenant, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. As surely, Hosea, as you're standing here right now, and as surely as that child comes out of the womb, and I say to name it, you're no kin of mine. As sure as that's true, in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there it shall be said to them. You see the grace of God coming? He said, in spite of all this, now you know why David said, where can I go, O Lord, that thy face cannot find me? Should I ascend into the heights of heaven, you're there. If I descend into the lowest parts of the earth, you're there. No matter where I go, you're there. No matter what I do, you see it. Your eyes are ever upon your children. He says, there it shall be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. And the children of Judah, the children of Israel, should be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land. He's pushing it forward. He's saying, it's going to get ugly. Now, if you look at the history of the Jewish people, God did exactly what he said he would do in scattering them, in deporting them, uh, making their heart known to them and to the rest of the world. He's done all that. Your heart's not my heart. The Jewish people's heart is still not the heart of God. Their heart is hard. Just exactly as Scripture said it would be until the times of the Gentiles, as Romans 11 says, are fulfilled. So Hosea's neighbors might have been thinking at this point in time, they're probably, can you imagine what the neighbors are doing? They're shaking. Are you kidding me? What is Hosea thinking? That dude has had too much wine. He he ate some kind of fruit off of some vine and his head is messed up. He's just not getting it. What does he see in Gomer? Wasn't she, you know, one of them? Well, the answer is, yeah, she was. But so was I. And so were you. But we were washed and we were cleansed. I'm even wondering if the angels weren't kind of wondering what, how far the grace of God went at this point in time. But is, hasn't that always been the case? Look back on the Garden of Eden. What does God see in them? Adam? What a dope. Eve? Are you kidding? What's God seeing? What's God seeing you? What's God seeing me? See, he sees past all that stuff. He sees the finished product. You probably could say, you know, that people were thinking, oh, I don't know why he just doesn't end this. 
That's how big God's grace is. So far as mercy goes. And I want to really encourage you as we move forward in this book. You're going to see the love and you're going to see the grace of God, maybe like you've never seen it before. Because this is this is the this is when it's on its largest display. When things are really horrible, when God has been faithful to his promises, because he's going to do exactly what he said he was going to do, but he's still crying out to the Jewish people. He still has a plan for them. And there is going to be a battle in the Valley of Jezreel one day. It might be not too far in the distant future. And during that time of tribulation, that time of Jacob's trouble, the Jewish people are going to look upon him, Zechariah said, whom they pierced. And they are going to mourn. The reason they're going to do that is because they will then look back to Jesus and go, it was him. It was him. From now back to then, it's already been 2,000 years of God's unbelievable grace and mercy. Because if he was really so upset with the Jewish people, Hitler was about two shakes from getting the job done. Amen? When they came back into the land, the next day after they declared their declaration of independence as a state, the next day, bear in mind at the time Israel had a standing army of less than 100,000 people and almost half were ladies. And they were not trained professional soldiers. They just simply had a gun. They were attacked on every side. They were attacked by Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and Egypt. At that time, Israel had exactly 17 aircraft. Egypt alone had over 300. And yet they fought that battle and actually took ground. They could have pushed them off the planet. Then push it forward to 1967. The same nations attacked them again with weapons superiority and with numbers over tenfold greater than the nation Israel. What does this passage say? Miraculously, God will defend them and continue to allow them to be because he loves them. So in 1967, not only did they win the war, they do it in six days, and they take the city of Jerusalem, and Moshe Dayan stands on the Temple Mount. Nineteen seventy-two, the same nations attack them again with much more modern weapons, with massive amounts of personnel arrayed against them, and they win that war too. God said, "While you're messing around, not my people, but one day." Both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are going to have one head. And you're going to go to the valley of Jezreel. And you're going to come out of the valley of Jezreel proclaiming Jesus as Lord. Amen.
Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word and for its promises. And as we look back on the course of human history, Lord, really the last nearly 3,000 years of it, we can see your hand in keeping these promises. Lord, the Jewish people have been brought to the brink of extinction so many times we can scarcely remember. And yet, Lord, you've preserved them. You've prospered them. They're the most powerful nation in the region right now, and yet they still don't know you. And your word declares that one day there's going to be a world ruler who will come on the scene and he will make peace between the rest of the world and the Jewish people, even allowing them to build a temple again. And yet it will only begin be the beginning of sorrows. Lord, the things that will transpire in the ensuing three and a half years will be staggering to the human mind. And so we know, Lord, that these days are still, from our perspective yet future, that the Jewish people will be bound together under one leader. And so, God, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We thank you for your unbelievable grace. Lord, how you have suffered long and been kind, just as 1 Corinthians 13 says. Lord, with us and with them. And we pray, God, that as we study this book, that you'd show us your grace, that you'd show us your mercy, that you'd fill us with your love. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.